Look with me, please. Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll begin our reading this morning in verse 18, not verse 11. We've moved on now past verses 11 through 17, but we're still going to review that a little bit leading into 18. But after many, many weeks, and so uh, making our journey through Ephesians chapter 6 now and verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that we might have clarity of thought and understanding provided by the discernment of your spirit through our time of study. Lord, may you provide your strength and your ability to proclaim properly, communicate effectively the truth of your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus as your word reveals him to us, as we see even in these passages which we have been studying through these weeks, the truth of Christ being revealed. We thank you, Lord, for the provision that's been made for us, not only in salvation itself, but also as we walk with you, as we are being sanctified progressively through our walk of faith with you. We thank you that you are faithful in that which you have begun. So, Father, may we stand maintaining the position you've provided us in Christ as your word exhorts us to do. And may we follow after you to know you more, Lord. Truly, may that be the very passion of our heart, the very desire that consumes our being as we live these days of life that you have granted us. And may you receive all the glory and honor as it so rightfully belongs to you. And, Lord, as we read in your word, may the very words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. For the past several months, if you've been with us, you know we've been examining Paul's teaching concerning God's provision for us in Christ. As detailed within this particular portion, the previous verses of this chapter, 11 through 17, 10 through 17 specifically, in Paul's description of the spiritual armor, which he has, God has provided for us. And I want again, as I mentioned, review a few things before we enter into our study this morning of verses 18 and following, as we are nearing now the conclusion of our study of Ephesians. As you know, having spent now well over a year in this, in this book, in this epistle, uh, we must be reminded of a few truths I want to mention before we move forward in, in even the review of last week, or of the many weeks prior, and that is that uh, in case you're not aware of this, you need to understand this, even in looking at the verses we've read this morning and the verses we'll be reviewing this morning, this passage, that Ephesians is divided into two divisions, and the first three chapters are the first division in which Paul is explaining to us in detail the position that God has provided us in Jesus Christ, in His Son. And then in chapters 4 through 6, as Paul does in his epistles, he now moves from a doctrinal teaching to the practical living out of this truth. But what we must remember, especially in light of chapter 6, but in in 4, 5, and 6, but specifically in chapter 6, that this teaching in chapter 6 of of standing, the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged, all of the teaching that Paul engages herein, we, we have to recognize that it's all rooted and based or hinges upon the first three chapters. Because Paul is telling us, as we will see, that we are to stand and we are to maintain that position. That's what he's saying. And so what position is to which, to which position is he referring? Well, he's speaking of the position 
of chapters 1 through 3, that we are in Him, we are in Christ. And again, just to summarize briefly, chapters 1 through 3 are all about who we are in Christ, because God has made Christ this unto us, so we are in Him, and now our position in Him. And therefore, chapters 4 through 6 are all about Christ in us. So if we are in Him and we acknowledge and understand the teaching that we are in Christ and what that means and what that looks like, then we live out that truth through our lives as Christ now is living His life in and through us. And so that sets somewhat the the foundation or the basis for everything that Paul deals with in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so, reviewing again verses 10 through 17, more specifically 11 through 17, we are reminded that we are daily in need of this armor which Paul lists in verses 11 through 17 because we face spiritual battle daily on two primary fronts. The first one, as we've seen over the past many weeks, is the attacks which come from within. James 1, 13 through 15, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. We know that at, when lust hath conceived, every man is drawn away with his own lust and enticed, and when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and when it is finished, bringeth forth death, James said. Then Galatians 5, of course, the, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, so they are contrary the one to the other, and you cannot do the things that you would. Romans 7, Paul makes it clear that there's a constant battle, there things I want to do, I don't do, things I don't want to do, I do, and he speaks of two different natures existing here within him. Of course, it's that sinful, fleshly nature, and then the spirit that dwells within him. So in James, in, in, or in Galatians, in Romans, Paul is talking, of course, here about believers who possess both the spirit of God, yet still battle the sinful, fleshly nature that exists within them. And again, not to confuse the two, sometimes scripture speaks of the flesh, and it's speaking specifically of the body in which you live. Other times, Scripture speaks of the flesh, and it's talking about the sinful nature which abides within this physical body in which you live, as well the Spirit of God dwelling in us. So in Galatians 5, that's what's being referenced. Again, Paul says, the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. And the meaning of what Paul is stating here, with the implication of this, to to understand it and to explain it to you, is that Paul is saying that the flesh, the sinful nature within you, desires to take control or claim that to which it has no rightful claim, and that is your body. In other words, the flesh is constantly wanting to control your physical body, but there's a, if you're born again by the Spirit of God now dwelling in you, His Spirit's within you, which of course is the flesh is in constant conflict with the Spirit of God dwelling within you, and the Spirit is, is constantly uh, correcting us, reminding us, instructing us, teaching us, and empowering us to live in the truth of the victory God has provided us in Jesus Christ. And so this constant battle takes place within us, and we must be aware of that. So there are attacks from within that we face on every single day as a believer in Jesus Christ. Second, there are attacks as well which come from without. In Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, and we know that these attacks are present. And again, remember, the attacks really are not personal, though we experience them in a very personal manner. We, we become so... Uh, uh, self-focused today, we have become such, that we think that every tax against us, listen, the attack is not against us, it's against the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's against Christ, the person of Christ, it's against the faith in which we stand. And if you happen to stand in this faith, you happen to be identified in the person of Christ, you happen to be born again by the gospel of Christ, God using the gospel of the good news of Jesus to uh, to transform your life by faith, believing God, if this has been accomplished in you, then you're identified with Christ. Therefore, if Christ suffered, why would we not also suffer? But why would we suffer? Because Christ is within us. He's living his life in us and living out the truth of who he is in the gospel. 
and, and his word is truth. And so we must be aware of this. Paul commands the church at Ephesus to stand or to maintain the position that God has given them in Jesus Christ, as Paul clearly details in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, as we've mentioned. Paul also commands the church to put on the armor of God. And to put on the armor of God, or the armor of light, as he refers to it in Romans, is for one to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I say this because you must understand this truth. Never forget this. The armor Paul lists in Ephesians chapter 6 is not in addition to Jesus Christ, and we know that's true for many reasons. One of them being, Paul is referencing he is ex, he's, ex, he's exegeting Isaiah's prophecy in Ephesians 6. And so when you go back to Isaiah and see what Paul is referencing, it's talking about that the arm of the Lord is not short, that it cannot save, Isaiah 59, and then it goes on to talk about how that there was none that were there that were righteous, that their transgressions had separated them from God, and so not the Jews here specifically. And then it says, but God, God provided this righteous man, this righteousness, and that righteousness, as Paul declares throughout the New Testament, is the person of Jesus Christ. So Christ is this righteousness. So again, we must recognize and remember that this is not an additional provision that we, again, have stashed in some closet in our lives that occasionally, oh, occasionally there, there's a battle that rises, like every four years, right? Or, are you following me? And, and so it, it's like con- there's this constant battle that's arising. No, you are facing spiritual conflict. You are engaged in spiritual warfare every single day. And first of all, it's attacked from within, and then it's an attack from without, and you are faced with this constantly if you are in the faith. And, and we must recognize the provision that's been made is not something back there for when we really need the heavy gear. No, we are to put on, make appropriate the provision that God has made on a daily basis. And in, in Romans chapter 13, 12 and verse 14, Paul explains this. He says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. But then then verse 13, then verse 14, and we've dealt with this previously, but for sake of time, we'll go to 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So when Paul says to put on the armor, he is literally saying put on the Lord Jesus Christ. As a believer, we are to appropriate the provision, maintain the position that God has already given us. Again, too many believers today are attempting to fight a battle that is not theirs to fight. They're attempting to charge hell, if you will, and all wickedness and spiritual darkness. You know what we're told to do? Stand. Maintain the position that's been provided by God in Jesus Christ. And by the way, this position in which we stand is not an attempt to gain victory. We are to maintain the position of victory that has already been given to us in Christ. And so it's so important, again, to recognize and understand Ephesians 1 through 3 before you begin to look at chapter 6, because you will not understand chapter 6 without understanding the position which Paul commands we maintain, which is all provided in chapters 1 through 3 of this epistle. So first, we are commanded to stand, to maintain our position in truth. Verse 14, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Again, I don't have time to deal with all of this, just briefly summarizing Truth is the very foundation upon which we stand. Without truth, there is no true gospel. There is no true righteousness. There is no true faith. There is no true peace with God. There there is no true word of God without truth. Truth is paramount. Truth is primary. And so we stand upon the truth. We maintain the position of truth. And by the way, Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is Jesus. This isn't Jesus plus something else. Second, we are commanded to stand or maintain our position in righteousness. Verse 14 goes on to say, having on the breastplate of righteousness. 
God has clothed us, he has covered us, he has protected us in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I mentioned a while ago Isaiah 59, from which Paul quotes or references much of this portion of Scripture, including this portion here. But in Isaiah 61, just two chapters following, in verse 10, this is what we read. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. Remember that? We're going to get to that in a moment. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. What righteousness am I clothed in? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Interesting, isn't it, again, that he mentions a bridegroom and a bride when that's exactly the, the metaphor used concerning the church, one of the metaphors used concerning the church and the Lord Jesus. He is the bridegroom. We are a bride. We are espoused unto him to be married unto him. And he's going to be, we, we, we will be presented unto him without blame before him. Why? But not because we're not guilty. No, because Christ is righteous and we are clothed in his righteousness. Third, we are commanded to stand or maintain our position in the gospel of peace. Verse 15, and that your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This good news of peace provided us as confidence and stability in a world of uncertainty because we are standing rooted in the truth that we have peace with God. When he says the gospel of peace, understand, we are maintaining the position of the good news, good tidings of peace. He's talking about warfare. Is there peace in the midst of warfare? I mean, there may be moments of peace. That's not what he's talking about. He says even in the, in the midst of the war which you are constantly engaged you maintain the position knowing this, that if all hell breaks loose all about you, the attacks of the enemy are coming all upon you, remember this truth. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Maintain that position. Maintain the truth of the peace that you have with God. We are commanded as well to stand or maintain our position in faith. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Faith is the means provided by God by which we believe God. Faith is not subjective to you, and we've seen, we saw this a few weeks back or last week even. Faith is not subjective to you. So in other words, faith, it's not your faith and your faith. No, there is the faith, and if you are of the faith, then that is your faith because you're of the faith. But the faith is that of Jesus Christ, and as Jude says, contend uh, for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, meaning once and for all time delivered unto us. And so this is the faith. And so we are to stand in the faith. And the very thing which the enemy attacks, as we've already mentioned, is the faith. And yet the faith is the one provision we are given that is victorious over the attacks of the enemy. In other words, while Satan, while the world, while all those who hate God would attack the faith, it is belief in God and believing God, which faith, that's what faith is defined as being. Believing God, belief of God, believe in God, and believing God. It is through believing God that we are victorious. Again, not to belabor the point, but in Corinthians, Paul mentions after God had already determined or stated to Ananias in Acts 9 at his conversion that Paul would suffer great things for his name's sake. And then in Corinthians, Paul, having suffered greatly for the cause of Christ, said all of these afflictions are light afflictions and but for a moment because God is working a far exceeding great weight of glory. And Paul had an eternal perspective believing God despite the fact of the attacks upon him, despite the fact of the persecution, the suffering, all he experienced for the gospel's sake. 
Paul still said this is all a light temporal thing. How could he say such a thing? When God himself said, I will show him what great things he must suffer. Here's why. Paul believed God. And he knew that this was an eternal work that God was performing amid the, the, the temporal, physical persecution and, and suffering. Don't forget as well that Paul told Timothy, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Again, that means oppression. Uh, the word persecution there doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be beaten with a cat of nine tails or a whip or scourged necessarily, though it can be. It can mean you're going to be beheaded, as some still are today. Those of the faith in other countries are being martyred for the cause of Christ, and that very well can happen here. And so we must be aware of that. But when he says you're going to suffer persecution, he's not merely saying, you know, if you're not beaten every day, then you're not living godly. No, he's saying if you are living godly in Christ Jesus, then you are facing spiritual attack on a regular basis. You are opposed. There is oppression and opposition that is present. The very thing, again, with the, which the enemy attacks is the one provision we are given that is victorious over the enemy and his attacks. First John 5, 4 and 5, it goes on to say, and what is our victory? The faith. Five, we are commanded to stand or maintain our position in salvation. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Theologically, salvation is a blanket term, which means... Biblically, salvation means deliverance, defined. Theologically defined, salvation includes deliverance, redemption, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so, and you could even say imputation, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed unto us. So there's many things, it's a blanket term used many times in Scripture, salvation, not just saying we are delivered, but saying we are delivered, we are redeemed to God, we are reconciled with and to God through Christ. We, are, we are, are justified by God in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are glorified or will be glorified because of Christ. And so this is a blanket term, and we are to maintain our position of this truth, these truths. Then six, we are commanded to stand in the Scriptures, which we looked at last week, and take the helmet of salvation, verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So Paul refers to the word, God's Word, first of all, as the sword. And again, just to, to be clear, this is the only offensive weapon listed within this entire list of God's provision of armor. One, can, again, can claim their truth as absolute truth, and I say their truth uh, uh, very loosely because there's only absolute truth. You don't have a truth apart from truth. But yet, men will claim they have their truth as absolute truth. One can claim their works as good and righteous, though they're not. One can claim that they are at peace with God based on a supposed relationship with God, apart from Jesus, who is the only way to God the Father. One can claim they possess faith, yet saving faith is the faith of Jesus alone. And one can claim salvation yet possesses absolutely no evidence of salvation as defined by Scripture. Yet God's Word is tangible in that it is something we can hold in our hands. We can read and study its truth and its unchanging truth. The truths of God's Word are absolute and remain the same for everyone who reads it. While men can argue against truth based on their own personal experiences... The Scriptures remain impervious to the futile attempts and efforts men make to discredit them, excuse them, or just explain them away. And so the Word of God is truth, and we are given an offensive weapon, if you will, which we are standing in truth. And again, as we're about to mention, many people would say, okay, so we're supposed to take the sword and we're just supposed to go out and slay the dragon, right, with the sword. But the reality is, though the sword is offensive, an offensive weapon, yet the reality is that it is the sword, but it's not our sword. Paul not only says the sword, but he says take the sword of the Spirit. 
So the sword is of the Spirit. Now, we know that, of course, is from origin because the Spirit of God is the one who literally authored His Word. Men were, or the Word is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, and men wrote, as Peter says, as, as we understand the Scriptures teach us, Paul declares. So the Word of God is inspired, and God used men to pen His Word. But the truth of, God, of God's Word is eternal, and it came from God. So yes, it's the sword of the Spirit in that respect. But Paul is not claiming here that we are to wield the Scriptures as though it is our sword, but rather we are equipped with the sword of the Spirit, which therefore is to be used in the power of the Spirit who lives within us. The sword of the Spirit is powerful, not only against the attacks of the enemy which take place from without. In other words, people will argue their experiences all day long. But you can stand on the truth of God's Word, which is tangible. You have copies of the Word of God that you can say, this is God's Word, this is unchanging, this is what He's declared. Now, men won't believe that, apart from His Spirit working in them to open their eyes, to bring them to spiritual life. Men will reject and refuse to believe. But they're arguing from experience or from some abstract belief, whereas God has given us the offensive weapon of His Word, upon which, is, which is concrete. And absolute, though we must labor to understand it and pray God provide us the sermon of His Spirit to be able to, to glean and understand the truth as it has been provided unto us, it is imperative that we use the Word of God, not our experiences, not our emotions, not our beliefs and thoughts, but God's Word to stand in the truth and defend such truth. By the way, uh, it, it is true, R.C. Sproul said that all men are theologians, some are just bad. And the fact of the matter is we are all theologians, it's just some are really bad theologians. And the other, it's also been said that, uh, or Peter explains to us, that we are all apologists. Whenever he says that we are to be ready to give answer to any man that asks of the hope that is within us, the confidence that is within us, we are to be apologists. We are to be able to answer the questions from Scripture, not subjectively, objectively. This is God's Word. It's not what I think about it or how I interpret it. This is what God says and provide that context. So the sword is not our sword, it's the Spirit's sword. And the sword of the Spirit is powerful not only against from these attacks that take place upon us, but as well in conquering the constant attack which, which takes place within us. Hebrews 4, 9-14, the writer makes that clear, that it's, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, it piercing us under. It knows the very thoughts and intents, a discerner of the very thoughts and intents of the heart. What is that saying? It's saying God's Word penetrates our hearts penetrates our minds. It, it searches us by working of His Spirit, using that within our lives. And so this morning, we can move forward to verse 18. We progress into the text, or the next division within this text, in this final chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. As I mentioned last week, although Paul has concluded his teaching concerning God's provision of armor, which we just briefly reviewed, he continues his overall teaching of maintaining the position God has granted us in Christ within these verses that follow. Let's look at verses 18 through 20 again. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now Paul begins this next portion of the chapter with the exhortation to pray. And this is not, even though this is another division within the chapter, he's not 
disconnecting completely from what has just been stated. He's just moving now forward, saying that we are to maintain this position, but prayer is an important part. So prayer is obviously an important part of the life of the believer. What's more, as Paul explains within this passage, prayer is important in relation to our spiritual well-being, and more specifically, it is essential in maintaining the proper focus amid spiritual attack. While many people today talk about the power of prayer, and some even speak of the purpose of prayer, there is apparently a gross misunderstanding of the purpose and power of prayer as demonstrated and taught within the Scriptures. Furthermore, it is, the, it is in the very purpose of prayer that the power of prayer is actually realized. And people don't understand this. If you don't know the purpose of prayer, you really don't understand its power. For, in other words, people will say, well, prayer is powerful. And they'll normally make statements like that when they've prayed something and God answers that prayer in a manner that they pray. They're like, oh, prayer is powerful. And yet, if God doesn't answer a prayer in the, the way they pray, what happened to prayer then? Is it no longer powerful? No, maybe it's just we're not praying biblically and according to Scripture, according to the will of God, as Scripture so clearly teaches us to. But when you understand the purpose of prayer, then you realize the power of prayer. The purpose of prayer, first of all, and we've dealt with this recently, it's funny, uh, somewhat, it's interesting how that 1 John and Wednesday night studies has aligned with Ephesians in much of the content uh, it, it's been somewhat odd, but we've dealt with this somewhat in, in 1 John in our, our midweek services or studies as well. But the purpose of prayer is not to change God, but it is a means by which God's Spirit works within believers to change us. When our hearts are in tune with God, which is evidenced by a life of submission to God, we will then seek after that which God desires. What's more is that we will not desire to change God's will, But we will submit to God and we will desire that His will be accomplished above all else. In other words, when we are praying biblically in submission to God, submission to the truth of God's Word, we aren't desiring for God to change His will for us, which He will not do. But rather, we actually are saying, Lord, change my will to align with Yours. And therein lies the power of prayer that God uses it to transform our desires. And, and you look, look throughout um, the book of Psalms, in the Psalms it says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Most people, again, read that as though it's saying, Okay, well, Lord, I love you, so now give me what I want. That's not at all what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying, If you are delighting in God, your desires are authored by him. He's the one who gives you the desires you have. Not he gives you your desires, He gives you the desire that you desire, is what it's saying. And so now, God is the one who authors this. So the purpose of prayer is not changing God, but it's really changing us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, our Lord Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When one's life is truly submitted to the Heavenly Father's will, the Lord's will becomes more sought after than one's own desires. And this, again, is the power of prayer because God changes our desires to become His desires. Here's what we want prayer to do. We want prayer to change God's desires to become our desires. But that's not going to work for you. In fact, 1 John says, we know, this is the confidence we have. We believe in the Lord Jesus. We believe Jesus. This is the confidence we have. That when we pray, He heareth us. And we know that if He hear us, when we pray according to His will, He heareth us. And we know that when he, if He hear us, then he grants the petitions which we have asked. 
But the key there is pray according to his will. Now, again, to clarify, people will say, oh, well, pray in Jesus' name. Make sure, oh, never quit a prayer, never end a prayer without saying in Jesus' name. That becomes superstitious. Saying Jesus' name or in Jesus' name is not going to do anything. In fact, to prove that to you, Jesus says in Matthew, does he not? Many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in thy name? And yet he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Ye workers of iniquity. So saying in Jesus' name is not the answer here. Praying in Jesus' name means that we are submitted to his authority, to his power, to his will. Again, to clarify, when you think about one being sent as an ambassador on behalf of Caesar or the king or a messenger, what have you, they would go in the name of the one they represented. They were approaching the individuals they were going to in the power and authority of the one who sent them. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in the authority and power of Christ according to His will because His power and authority will never be demonstrated outside of His will. So we must recognize, understand this truth. Paul's exhortation to pray is followed by instruction concerning how the church was to pray. Because he's still speaking to the church at Ephesus, of course. He says, praying always. How can one possibly live according to Paul's charge, praying always? Well, we must understand that this exhortation is not a command for us to do nothing in life other than pray. Some people think this means that you're supposed to spend eight hours a day in a prayer closet, and, and that's what Paul's talking about. And it could include that, but that's not what Paul is saying here. So this exhortation is not a command for us to do nothing but pray. However, it is a charge for us to be prayerful concerning everything that we do in life. All of life. In concluding his letter to the Thessalonian church, Paul gave a similar command as we find in Ephesians 6.18 in 1 Thessalonians 5.16-19. through 19. He said, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul provides a context for continual prayer. He states that God's will is for the church to give thanks in everything or in all circumstances and then warns them to not quench the Spirit. In other words, Paul is warning the church to not extinguish the Spirit's fire within them. Praying always does not mean, again, that our lives consist of nothing but prayer, but rather it means that there is not to be any part of our lives which prayer does not consume. In other words... Our prayer is our communication with God. God has communicated with us. How has He done that? Through His Word. And His Spirit uses His Word, but He communicates through His Word. And we communicate how to God? Through prayer. And so God has communicated to us through His Word, through the person of His Son, and His Spirit gives us discernment to understand that which He has said as we study and are diligent in the truth. But we communicate, communicate to God through our prayer through our communication so here's the point while there is it's obviously honorable if it's done in truth and humility unto god to spend if you spend a couple hours in prayer a day or in the morning or that that's wonderful but i would encourage you that it is it is much better to just continually communicate with the lord throughout all of your day not that you shouldn't do the other as well i'm not saying don't i'm not discouraging you from praying by any means but i'm saying to you so you spend you know Okay, let me give you an example. So, so your, your mother lives out of town, as does mine. And you say, okay, well, every week, you know, I need to call my mom. I need to say hey to my mom. 
Okay, that's great. You commit 30 minutes to talk to your mom. Well, that's wonderful. But isn't it better when you can pick up the phone at any time and just start talking and communicate about anything because you're in a relationship and you're in fellowship together? Are you following? So as we pray, let it be that we pray always, not meaning we're walking or crawling around on our knees all the time or are in some closet all the time, but rather that we are in continual fellowship. We are continually in communication with the Lord. By the way, uh, Jesus even warns in the, in the model prayer, which of course many people refer to as the Lord's Prayer, which is really not the Lord's Prayer. It's the model prayer when the disciples are like, Lord, teach us to pray. He says, pray after this manner, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, so on and so forth. And then at the end, Jesus says, do not use, or in that text, Jesus says, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do. Don't just use the same words over and over out of repetition. Out of doesn't mean you can't pray the same thing necessarily, but if it's just a matter of habit and rep- repetition, it, it, there's no benefit or value in that whatsoever. The point being, we are to be in fellowship with the Lord. And then you look how Jesus actually prayed to the Father. In John 17, in his intercessory prayer, in his high priest prayer, when Jesus prayed, look at the fellowship he, he expressed with the Father that they experienced. Look at how he spoke to his Father in reverence, but yet as well as his Father, as his friend, as one in whom he is one with. And we, as children of God, are in Christ, and therefore we are received as Christ is received because he is our high priest who ever liveth to make intercession for us. So we approach God, not again being scared of God, but in reverence of who he is, but approaching him as a son or daughter approaches their father, knowing that their father loves them. And so we're able to approach God in that manner and communicate with him on a continual, consistent basis. He goes on to say, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Now, the first truth within this statement, which demands our attention, is not prayer and supplication. I think sometimes we get distracted at the wrong thing rather than seeing the importance. He's saying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Once again, if we are praying in the Spirit, it does, not, it does not mean that we have prayers that appear powerful by the eloquence of speech or even our understanding of God's truth. Rather, to pray in the Spirit means that we are praying in submission, submitting ourselves to the presence and power of the Spirit of God who dwells within us. In Romans chapter 8, 24-27, Paul wrote, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Then verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he that maketh intercession for the saints, he, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit of God intercedes for us when we don't even know what to pray or how to pray. The Spirit communicates, the Spirit of God communicates through us to the Heavenly Father on our behalf in a manner that is beyond man's ability to communicate and is always in accordance to God's will. Did you see that? According, He makes intercession for us according to the will of God. So our prayer is to be in the Spirit, meaning not that we're in some mystical trance. People are pervert so much these truths. It means, what does the Spirit say? He's, what did Jesus say the Spirit would do? Again, a brief overview of this. Jesus said that the Spirit, He would send the Comforter, the Spirit of God, to do what? To remind us all things He had said, to teach us and guide us into all truth. He would rebuke the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But as I say that about the believer, He's going to reside within us 
and he's going to glorify Jesus Christ. The point being, the Spirit's work is always in accordance to the will of God the Father, and Jesus himself has declared that the Spirit's entire purpose is to glorify Jesus, remind us of what Jesus has said, teach us what Jesus has said, that's the sermon of the Spirit, and we are to pray in that manner. We are to pray in submission to the Spirit, which is always in submission, or submission in the Spirit, which is always in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is always in submission to the Word of God, He being the Word, which is always in submission to God the Father, His will and His truth. Paul then explains with all prayer and supplication, so to be prayed, this is to be prayed in the Spirit. So Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, in verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 6 of Philipp, uh, the book of Philippians, or his epistle to the church of Philippi, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. The command to be careful is a command for believers to not be anxious, is what he's saying. Don't be anxious for any reason. But in contrast to being anxious, in all things, by prayer and supplication or petitions, with thanksgiving within your heart, make your requests known unto the Lord. Paul then declares, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Paul commands the church to remain alert here, watching thereunto. And in such a manner, pray continually, making requests for all believers. So we are to pray for one another, Paul is saying. Prayer is not to be focused only on ourselves and our needs, but as well we are to pray for each other. And this is for many reasons. First of all, our prayer, if in the Spirit, will align us with God's will. You can't pray in the Spirit apart from God's will. You can say things and you can make all kinds of requests, but here's the reality of it. When you are praying according to God's will, you are praying in the Spirit in subjection and submission to Jesus, which means that we, as Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Two, our prayer, if in the Spirit, will keep us focused on what is spiritual and eternal. When we are praying according to God's will, it won't be focused on us getting everything we want in the flesh, physically speaking. It won't even always be focused on our physical needs. Though there's nothing wrong with us making our petitions and our needs known to God. We're commanded to do that. It's part of our relationship and fellowship with Him. Privilege of that relationship and fellowship to do so. That He's provided us and granted us. Third, our prayer in the Spirit will fulfill God's command in His Word for us to prefer others before ourselves. If we are genuinely praying in the Spirit, then we will not have prayers consumed about us and on us all the time. We will be praying for others. Why? Because His Word commands us to, and if we're praying according to His will in the Spirit, then His Spirit's going to work through us, and that'll be the direction of our prayers. Again, we make our needs known, yes, but that's not the focus of all of our prayer when praying in the Spirit. Number four, our prayer, if in the Spirit, will cause us to live in humility, remembering that we are all dependent upon the grace of God as provided for us in Jesus Christ. When we pray in the Spirit, you know what I'm reminded there's nothing I can say or nothing I can do that's going to impress God. But I'm also reminded there's nothing I have to because Jesus has satisfied him. <laughs> so I'm praying in submission to him and his word. Verses 19 and 20, we'll wrap this up this morning within the hour. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul did not exclude himself from the need and request for a prayer by the Ephesian church. Paul wrote, and for me. In conclusion to his exhortation concerning prayer in these verses, Paul finally requests the church to pray for him. However, his request for prayer is not focused selfishly on himself. How do we know that? Look what he says. And for me, 
that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul's request is that the church pray for his boldness in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such a request is certainly an example for us as well. If we are praying in the Spirit, then our requests are not selfishly motivated, but are focused on the furtherance of the gospel and God's will being accomplished in and through our lives. And this desire is ultimately for God's glory in declaring the mystery of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, 7-12, Paul wrote, Wherefore I was made, or whereof, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make no or to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Paul says so much there that he has repeated in the text which we're in in reality. So Paul is saying this mystery as other epistles, we read even earlier this morning also, other epistles of Paul clearly explain that this mystery is the fellowship of the Gentiles within the, the, the family of God through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this was hidden from ages past, even throughout all the Old Testament prophets. Through, you'll find multiple times it's repeated that, again, God was going to make a people which were not a people, His people, referencing the Gentiles. This is the mystery of which Paul speaks. Then verse 20, he says, For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So he's saying, pray for me as one who's an ambassador in bonds, and part of me being in bonds is part, part, partly that I may speak boldly as I should, but pray that God will give grace for me to do so. Now this portion of Paul's request for prayer for himself, I believe is one of the most intriguing and revealing portions of this text as a whole. Notice Paul states that he is an ambassador in bonds. Paul is stating that he literally is in chains. He is literally in prison. Not not metaphorically, no. Paul is in prison as he writes this. And he's saying, I am in bonds. I am in chains. I am imprisoned. But yet, notice what Paul's prayer consists of. Does Paul pray? Now listen, church at Ephesus, you pray for one another and you pray for strength and you pray for boldness. You pray that God will give you the grace that's necessary. And by the way, I'm in prison, and I sure would appreciate it if you'd pray they'd let me loose. I'm afraid that's how we may pray. That's not how Paul prayed or asked for prayer. Did Paul, now, Paul may have prayed that himself, saying, Lord, your will be done. I sure would like to be somewhere else other than here, and I would be praying the same thing. But notice Paul's focus when he approaches the church at Ephesus, saying, and for me. He doesn't say, pray I'll get better food. He doesn't say, pray that I'll escape. Pray that God will send an angel to release me like, like Peter that day. He doesn't say, pray that they're going to find me not guilty and therefore let me go because I'm innocent. Isn't it interesting? Paul doesn't even mention any of these things, but he says, oh, by the way, as I am in chains, pray for me, but here's my request. Pray that God give me boldness in the gospel, which is the very reason that I'm imprisoned. Praying always. This is an exhortation which we should all heed. Prayer is not a mystical power to be used as we see fit, but in contrast, prayer is the means 
by which the Lord is working in and through our lives as believers in Christ to bring us to submission to His will and His purpose. Stand. Maintain the position that God has given you in Jesus Christ, praying always. Remain in constant fellowship, communication with the Lord. He is your Father. Christ is our High Priest. The Spirit is our Comforter. This Comforter God has given us. Pray in submission to the Lord. Praying always. Stop praying. Stop making foolish requests for God to change His purpose and will to align with yours. Start submitting to the Lord that His will be accomplished and you in submission are used as He is fulfilling that will and purpose. And what a joy it is. That's what Paul understood and that's why Paul was able to say, all of this light affliction is but for a moment and it is working a far greater weight of glory that is eternal, everlasting.